You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another Essential Apple podcast. Uh, Nick is not here this week because he is off caroling. Um, I'm not sure if that's with his church or just uh, with a local group, but they're off caroling. Um, I don't know where Jim is. Jim's not shown up. Um, Probably busy hoovering his house or something. And uh, I'm joined instead by Peter Cohen. Hello, Peter. Hello. Nice to talk to you. Yep. Nice nice to meet you. Um, So... First things first, Peter, would you like to tell the listeners uh, what it is you do and how come you've ended up up on this podcast? Well, uh, first of all, uh, Simon, thank you very much for the invite uh, to come on. um, I'm I'm always delighted, but I have been writing uh, about Apple since... uh, well, since before Web 1.0, and now we're on Web 3, huh? Ooh, boy, that's exciting <laughs> stuff. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yes. But, a, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I've, I, it's funny. I, I, my entire career since I was since I was a kid, uh, or all of my career since I was a kid, have been sort of Apple adjacent. It's really kind of funny. I, uh, yeah, I got my first Mac, uh, you know, about a year after they came out when I was uh, still in high school. And uh, almost immediately out of school, started getting jobs, um, uh, you know, working for uh, businesses that were using a lot of Apple computers at the time. Um, so uh, my, I, I eventually ended up in, in IT and in, in uh, uh, Mac Systems Administration. Um, and uh, then I had an opportunity um, uh, to write about Apple for a long time. So I worked at uh, Macworld Magazine for about a decade as a senior editor. Um, I came with a, a, a group of uh, folks that Macworld had acquired uh, called Mac Central. And we were a, a daily news site uh, for Apple-related news uh, back in the 90s and uh, early 2000s. And, you know, like I said, my, my entire career has always been sort of adjacent to Apple, either writing about Apple, taking care of, uh, of, of, of Macs, or um, even, you know, doing support and service for um, Apple-related hardware and software. Um, and I've just always written about and been interested in Apple. So that's kind of my, my Apple bona fides for the show. These days, I'm writing about 5G and cloud uh, computing uh, for RCR Wireless, um, which uh, has uh, a lot of readers in the telecommunications business. So it's a very different line of work than you know, what's commonly called service journalism or, you know, talking about consumer tech and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how, uh, uh, ubiquitous all this stuff is and how even there, even in the telecommunications market, when Apple has news, it's always seismic and it's always something that the entire industry pays attention to. But I guess that's what happens when you're the, you know, biggest tech company in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That does tend to be like that. Everybody hangs on every, uh, you know, Every rumor, every hint, every um, you know, every drop of uh, information that leaks out. 
So, um, yeah, very much so. Um, I, I, uh, I think the listeners on this show know that I've, I've, uh, worked in graphic design most of my life, design for print. And, um, so I got my first Mac in about 1988, I think. Um, I started off with a 2CX, um, Oh, such a nice little box, man. Three, mm. uh, uh, three new bus card slots, right? Yep, that that's the one. Um, now it was no two CI, it was no Quadra, but the two CX was a little work. Yep. course, man. It was a, it was a really really solid machine. Um, yeah, it was twenty four bit. I think the two CI was thirty two bit. Um, but right, we- yeah, the two CX was like my SE thirty. We both needed the SE the uh, the thirty bit. Uh, 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 system extension um, to clean things up for us, right? Yeah, that's that's the one. Um, but <laughs> the lovely machine. I had I had two CX boxes for years. Um, mm-hmm. I think we had some in the studio still running when um, the first G3s came out. They were still being used for you know basic basic. That's stuff. good because trying to replace them with any, that's good because trying to replace them with anything between the two CX and uh, uh, the G3 was you know probably more trouble than it was worth given all those nondescript beige boxes over the years. Yeah, we I had um, I replaced the two CX got um, replaced as a main machine first by a Quadra eight hundred tower and. Mm. After that, I think we went to the G3 when the first beige G- G3 came out. Was, and that was a lucky... Ah, the old world G3s. Yes, the original G3s. And that was some... Um, yes. Well, that was a lucky stroke for us because we were just about to, re- you know, refresh our kit in the studio. And we were looking at 7500s, uh, Power Mac 7500, and uh, mm. the rep who, uh, you know, who we'd always bought our stuff from came around and said... Right now, I can't tell you anything, but I'm not going to sell you a 7500. I suspect I suggest you hold off for a few weeks because um, something new is coming. And we went, Ooh. and so mm. we jumped, yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, the G3 and that those G3 served us for a long, long time, I have to say. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, that was a great, uh, that was a great time to flip hardware, um, on the Apple platform. You know, it's funny, it, it's interesting in retrospect, um, with sort of the hindsight of that, uh, generational shift and also sort of the disruption that going from the 68 K architecture to power PC, um, had, uh, to, to sort of see Apple much more smoothly transition um and and then to intel of course in 2006 most famously but seeing it now uh through that lens it's 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 really kind of amazing to me how smooth um apple's switch to its own silicon has been yeah all things considered all very 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 smooth you know almost I mean, I obviously I remember the change from 68k to PowerPC, and you had all those things that went with that, and then they shifted to Intel. Um, which went now, by the way, for for, for 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 folks who 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 maybe uh, weren't around for this or, or weren't paying attention at the time, 60, going from 68k, going from the original Mac processor to PowerPC was so disruptive. It flatlined the developer community, the, the, the Apple developer community, because so many developer tools broke, right? A Code Warrior was the only thing 
<laughs> that saved Apple during that period of time. Remember? Yep. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, that was, that was, you know, that, that was huge. And as you know, 68 K 68 K to power PC that ended some of the best, like up until then, the best Mac programs that were out there. For example, at that point, I was already writing a lot of content um, using a, a word processor from TeamMaker called Right Now. Um, and I loved Right Now. It was so much better than Microsoft Word was at the time. And it was leagues better than anything that Apple had, like MacWrite. You know, it, it, it was a great word processor. It was very compact, but it was also written in 68K Assembler. Yeah. Right. So it couldn't make the transition to PowerPC because there was no Rosetta layer to get that stuff to work. There were no developer tools. This was so so this was so early in that process that, you know, that was a huge disruption and, and that killed that product. I mean, you can still run it today if you if you have an original Mac emulator, but um yeah, it, it never survived the, the transition to PowerPC. And you know, we we see that attrition, right? Uh PowerPC to six to uh to to, to Intel. There were developers and there were kind of little ecosystems that that changed radically because um, for whatever reason, the momentum of customers and developers on the new platform just didn't support it or wouldn't support it the same way. We're kind of seeing the same evolution um, in uh, uh, Intel um, to Apple Silicon as well. You know, we're seeing some developers say, well, you know, I'll support it when I support it, but I'm not going to break my back to do it. And if that means that, you know, my stuff is legacy, I guess my stuff is legacy. But we're, for the most part, it's been interesting to watch because the developers who are embracing technologies like Apple Metal, you know, for graphics and doing universal uh, binaries for uh, Apple Silicon Macs are yielding such incredible either performance or efficiency improvements. It's remarkable. Oh, it, it, it's huge. I mean, um... The Affinity stuff. I mean, they were, you know, they went straight on to M1, like on on day one, um, with native code, um, and their stuff's all coded in metal. Um, and those those boys amaze me. I mean, they recently did a um an up update, um, which added, you know, increased performance sort of eight to ten times. Um, and they did all that in code because they um. They said, you know, when Ashley demoed it, it was like, yeah, look, we're getting speed increases of sort of anywhere up to ten times on on some um, on some functions on you know huge files with ten thousand layers or whatnot. And then he said, and you will see this whatever platform you're on because it's all been done in um, in the code. It's not relying purely on the the M1. So it won't matter if you're on an Intel machine or if you're on Windows. These cleanups in the code will apply to you regardless which is just like i really want to know how they did that i really do <laughs> like uh, here's a here's a practical example for me as a user right um because of our work workflow i depend depend a lot on um uh google apps and as a result you know google chrome is sort of uh the best baseline browser for me to depend on uh for all my work stuff and you know, before now, I had a or before a couple of months ago, I was using a 15 inch uh, MacBook Pro from 2015. Um, is a very well equipped machine, and it had run great for a long, long time. But if I threw open any kind of Google Chrome window on that and opened up more than a few tabs, you know, it would gradually start eating memory, and eventually the the the, the, the memory and CPU would start gobbling away and all of a sudden my Mac is running, you know, like a hairdryer 
Yeah. And I don't know why. And when I take a look at Activity Monitor, Activity Monitor shows me all these Chrome processors that are cr- processes that are going out of control. Well, I have the exact same Chrome configuration on my M1, uh, 13-inch M1 MacBook Pro that I've got on my Intel Mac. And I've got all the same extensions loaded. I've got all the same permissions granted. I imported everything over just the same. But I can run multiple windows. I can run five, six windows, layer them you know, on top of one another. I can run each of them with dozens of tabs open at any given time. Uh, which I do, you know, a lot for research or writing, or um, you know, to refer back to other things that I've uh, I've written when I'm when I'm composing something, or also just you know all the the dashboard things that I need to keep track of what's happening at the job. All this stuff runs in Chrome, and honestly, my M1 MacBook has maybe had one problem that's required me to restart it since I got it, maybe two. Um, it just runs even Chrome. To Google's credit, runs so much more efficiently on the M1 um, than than it did on the Intel chip. I'm not having the same kind of performance and runaway memory issues that I'm having, or that that I had on my Intel Mac. So, again, I think that that's partly because you know Google's been made Chrome a good citizen on the M1, and also partly just because you know the M1 is so super efficient. So. These are places where it's actually made a significant difference for me. Another one is is just external display support. You know, hooking up external displays on my Intel-based Mac was always kind of hit or miss. You know, it's plug it in and, and maybe the Windows would remember where they were supposed to go. Maybe they weren't or, uh, you know, some apps seem out of order or some things just never really reset right. Re- redraw speeds and window placement and all that stuff is so you know, on my M1. It's incredible. So that is, for me, as a user, the thing that makes, you know, getting new hardware so appealing because these are improvements. These aren't like whiz-bang things, right? These are like the like you see in the Apple ads sometimes for the new iPhone 13 or, uh, you know, the new MacBook Pro. Sometimes they want to sell you on the, the, the sexiest features that... Um, uh, you know, makes you think that you're a Hollywood director or whatever, or, you know, a TikTok influencer, whatever. I don't care about any of that stuff. Get out of my way and make it easier for me to do my stuff. That's what you're really good at. That's what handoff's all about, right? That's what universal control coming, hopefully, at some point soon <laughs> yeah, to Monterey, because we've been waiting soon, for it. Maybe. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That That's what makes that so appealing, right? It's let me focus on the task at hand abstract the hardware from me altogether. I don't care what I'm working on. I just want to be able to do the work. Yeah, that is true. I mean, yeah, because we're, you know, we're in the kind of tech adjacent sphere, as you say, you know, we care about these things. We like to know about what chips they are, but most people really don't care. They don't care if it's running on Intel or Motorola or LNX or you just don't care. All you want is the computer to do what it's supposed to do, preferably as quickly as possible and as uh, easily as possible. That's Isn't it interesting? You know, you raise a really good point. And isn't it interesting, though, that with the conversation around the new Apple Silicon, Apple has removed any discussion about actual relative performance whatsoever like do you have any idea what the clock speed of an m1 or an m1x processor is no no, no. Right. exactly because apple apple hasn't told you 
No, you know, and it doesn't matter because also, you know, it's a completely different architecture. So almost certainly, whatever clock speed it runs at is, is completely, um, you know, apples to oranges against an Intel chip. So it, no, it, no pun intended, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a it would be a meaningless statistic, as it were, because I'm pretty sure you cannot compare the clock speed of a, you know, Apple Silicon chip to the clock speed of the ones we're all used to, the Intel cores, you know. Um, well, right, exactly. And I mean, it's it's about time to start uh, getting away from the, the sort of spec monkey uh, horsepower discussions that we have about these things, because they're really meaningless in the context of what can I actually do with this in terms of what is its compute potential? What What is its uh, machine learning ability? How much of this... Um, uh, how much of this hardware can, you know, execute AI stuff that is going to make my experience as a user that much better um, than it was before? That's really, you know, as we're moving into the sort of stuff that I think people are using their gear for, even just as consumers, and also just in general, as as consumer technology change, changes, I think that that's a much more meaningful conversation to have. What can I actually do with this? And how is this going to make that better? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, the um, what can you do with it? I think this is you, you're right. You know, the the sort of um, I don't know, sort of the megahertz wars or the you know, I've got more cores than you become kind of irrelevant because we've reached a point now with whatever architecture you're using that unless you are way, way, way up in the stratosphere of doing you know things that use teraflops per second you know of of actual compute power it doesn't really matter what machine you've got whether you you know from the most basic machine all the way up to the you know um esoteric uh sort of you know things that are used for doing hollywood composition and uh you know or folding proteins or whatnot um anything you get will be more than adequate for 99 percent of people it, it just so what you're interested in is what can this do for me what what can it do for me that the other machine couldn't do that's so yeah i i, I mean and that what we've got to bear in mind is that the apple silicon the m series is just starting out i mean when the m1s came out everybody was blown away by the performance and the um you know the efficiency the the watts per thingy that they measure and <laughs> uh, uh you know, quite a lot of us were saying, yes, but this is the, you know, this is the slowest, weakest M-series chip you're ever going to see. So, Right. Yeah. You know, it's it, people, people forget that, right? When, when the, when the Mac mini, the MacBook Air, and even my beloved here, 13-inch MacBook Pro um, M1s, uh, the, the M1 models debuted, that was, and, and even for that matter, the iMac, the 24-inch iMac, that was Apple cleaning up the low end of um the the uh the the mac consumer spectrum right we haven't seen the replacement for the ipad pro, i mean the, the imac pro yet we haven't seen the replacement for the mac pro yet we don't know what else apple has up its sleeve with uh the m series hardware um and or the m series silicon and its own desktop um and laptop hardware. So, you know, we, we will, it's, it's nice to see uh, the new 14 and 16 inch MacBook pros and gosh, they are hellaciously powerful. You know, uh, uh, 
a lot more horsepower than I, than I need for anything, right? Like I would like a MacBook Air in a 16-inch size. Like I would like the big display, but everything else, I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. I don't need the M1 Max. I don't even need the M1 Pro horsepower. I'm fine with what I've got. You know, it's it's great. You know, but um, sure, yeah. You know, pile on the cores or whatever. Um, we'll we'll see what happens uh, on the desktop side in 2022. It's going to be an interesting time. And that is going to be an interesting ride. I'm I'm really interested to see what they do with the Pro. Whether there will be an iMac Pro per se, because the I always thought that iMac Pro was a weird machine and i've said it on here before it it was kind of a stopgap to give people who needed more power than your consumer machine um but they'd already said the new mac pro expandable mac pro isn't going to be coming for a year or so so here's a mm-hmm. machine and um i've always thought that that the iMac pro was a slightly odd machine and it reminded me in in odd ways of the of the 2fx in that it was a it was a lovely machine and they screwed as much performance out of it as they could, but they did it in weird ways, which were like an evolutionary dead end. Um, yeah. It, yeah. No, yeah. It, it's, it's true. It's, it's very specialized. It's, it's a very specialized piece of hardware. The iMac, the 27 inch iMac still exists as a current product in Apple's product line, right? But it is an Intel based iMac that has the, the older industrial design, not the new colorful flat, um, uh, more squared off iPad Pro-y sort of, uh, of design or any of the other accoutrements that you find in the, in the, the, the M1 based um, iMac. So I definitely see that there's still a bifurcation there that Apple has not resolved, right? There are people out there who want a larger iMac. Maybe they want them because they're doing um, professional video editing on them, or they're using in some other professional capacity and they just want the larger size, or they're still on an Intel based workflow and they're, they're not ready to migrate yet. There's, there's certainly uh, a lot of validity there for a lot of folks. Um, you know, especially in, uh, as you know, graphic design, uh, uh, video production, any kind of production workflow where you're using these things, the last thing that you want to do if you're responsible for managing the systems on them, at least it, it was for me in my career as an IT person, you know, working in that that sphere, was disrupt a working workflow that's great for everybody just to get the new shiny, you oh, know, yeah. on your latest gear. That is that is a quick way to end your career <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah, in IT. Um, you know, as true now as it was when 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 I did it, but. Uh, you know, my, my point is that there, there's, there's still that market there, right? But we're, we haven't seen that 27 inch model get replaced yet. And, you know, Apple's got to do something with it, whether it's a new pro or it's a new, let's say 30 inch iMac, you know, that's even more spectacular with the M1 uh, pro and M1 max, um, or something like that. I think that there is a market for it simply because the Mac pro itself, um, and the pro XDR display that Apple offers with it is so highly specialized and so highly specific to that, those vertical markets where Apple can fit it in there, um, that, uh, you know, the, the, it makes sense that those would be sort of the last two areas that Apple really has to close um, in order to finally put a cap on the Intel Mac era. Um, but 2022, baby, it's going to yep. happen, man. It's coming. It's coming. I Yeah. Looking at the way the the M series has gone, we had the M one, um, and then obviously they expanded it with the with the M um, one Pro, and then you've got the 
uh, the the M1 Max, which is yep. in effect uh, sort of the M1 Pro doubled. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a you know I could see the next step being kind of like um, an M1 Max doubled or even quadrupled. Because it's a, it seems to be, and I'm no chip engineer, but it seems to me a very modular kind of design. And effectively, you could, within the constraints of actually putting it down onto the silicon, you you can kind of just plug them together like like Lego, you know, and it'll make a bigger chip and immediately double the number of um, cores and the, the, all the rest of it. I'm, I'm... yeah, it's it. This is the, you raise a really good point. And, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what Apple does exactly to evolve the, the M series architecture in light of the fact that they're up against very real supply, um, uh, chain, uh, constraints and increased, uh, production cost from, uh, TSMC, you know, who's instrumental in, in making these as well. Um, TSMC already warned, uh, investors during its last quarterly call that, um, it had already told told its customers that it was going to be charging more uh, for products, a lot more for products going forward, and that there were going to be there there is going to be fewer supply or there's going to be more limited supply available. So that's obviously a big constraint up against Apple, and I'm sure that um, the 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 folks who are designing the chips at Apple have have got multiple contingencies in mind. But uh, what I'm hearing is that. Uh, you know, M2 is in production and, you know, is, is going to be in machines um, and that Apple, you know, already has uh, M3 plans in the work as well. So this is going to be something that we're going to see on an ongoing basis. And it's going to be really interesting to see how much leapfrogging and evolutionary work that Apple does on the Mac end of things, right? Because they've gotten very accustomed to um, an annual pretty much uh, workflow around developing new processors for phones and even iPads, right? You know, the the, the new shiny oh, yeah, will yeah, always yeah. have the latest A-series yeah, I chip mean, in it. A, you know, what are we up to now? A14, is it? I've lost count now. <laughs> right. You know, whether whether it's A15 a, or, you know, A15X, right? You know, there, there's always this sort of uh, uh, evolutionary incremental uh you know, change that Apple does, but that informs Apple's product refresh rate, you know, for those products, right? Because every year, every year we can count on a new iPhone model. Um, We can count on, you know, some kind of trickle down to make um, the, the, the iPhones that were the new shiny last year, more affordable. And the, the ones that were new shiny two years ago, even more affordable and here's what we did with that on the iPad. Um, and y- you see where, where, where I'm going with this. It, it, it is locked into their, uh, their, 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 their product cycle. The Mac has been absent of that this entire time because it's been Intel-based. But I don't think Apple can or will increment M-series um, chips with quite the same fervor that they do for their mobile devices because the buying habits of uh, computer users are so much different than they are for mobile customers, right? I I bought my M1 MacBook Pro expecting that I was probably going to keep it for five or six years, just like I did the last one. 
uh, you know, this iPhone 12 that I got 14 months ago is looking long in the tooth. And quite frankly, I'm looking for a better value than I can get with a 13 Pro right now. But, you know, I'm probably going to, you know, bump this thing up within the next few months. That's just the consumer process for a laptop. But I'm not sticking my 13-inch MacBook Pro in my back pocket every time I walk out of the house. You know, I'm not pulling it out of my pocket 15, 20 times a day to... Uh, check stuff at work or, uh, you know, get a new uh, uh, audio playlist cranking so I can do my work, right? It, the use case for a laptop is so much different. So will Apple slow its roll with Apple Silicon for the Mac or will it continue this relentless uh, upgrade um, uh, process that it did for the A-series? That is very much a question in play in my mind, at least. And I'm curious to see how it resolves. Yeah, I, I would be interested to see how that pans out. My personal kind of thought on it would be that we see kind of a, a reiteration of what we've seen so you, you get like the m1 then you get the m1 pro then you get the m1 max and then I don't know, let's let's call it the m1 quad for, for the sake of it um and then those chips will you can refresh older models by simply saying okay all these m1 machines will be, probably be replaced by m1 pro so you can keep basically the same machine but move to the m1 pro when you bring out the m2 and let's say the m2 is basically the m1 but you go from a14 cores to a15 cores and then you can then you know make a, a pro and a max and a quad of those um and that would allow you probably to iterate on maybe a biannual cycle because you've got you've got room haven't you you've got room to say okay we can take out m1s and move everything to m1 pro as a minimum and then you've got you know m2s coming along um and then you can replace i don't know you know or maybe you go straight to m2 it i just think that they will probably not refresh fully refresh the m series every year that seems like a big undertaking to me yeah you know, it's it's interesting to me because there was some news this past week that um, that I think plays into this that that is going to be very important going forward, and I'm not sure um, how many people really paid attention to it. But at the beginning of the week, uh, uh, Mac rumors um, uh, and some others reported that um, uh, Apple is uh, is doing a a, a new uh, MacBook upgrade program for its business partners. Um, and it's basically modeled after the whole iPhone upgrade program, which I am very happy to be a member of um, because it's made life a lot easier for me. But, uh, you know, the idea is that um, uh, that uh, companies can uh, distribute and then um, uh, upgrade uh, computers to their employees for a predictable uh, amount per month per employee. And this is the second thing that Apple's done that seems to be a real grab at the business market, the, like a direct grab at the business sales market uh, for Apple, because Apple also uh, recently rolled out another program um, that uh, introduces mo uh, mobile device management, MDM, uh, sort of based IT services uh, for businesses direct through Apple. That's exciting stuff for business customers who rely on Apple products a lot, who want to, or can, at least at their volume, deal with Apple directly. A lot of times Apple just wants to push you off on what used to be called the old value-added reseller network, 
um, or, uh, you know, authorized service providers uh, or what have you to kind of stitch together the sort of individual custom framework that you need. But here's Apple stepping up going, nah, we'll, we'll keep that money for ourselves. Thank you very much. <laughs> yep. And you know what? I, I think a lot of businesses are going to be happier with the Apple Direct approach if they get you know, the, the sort of results out of it that they're looking for in terms of cost savings or in terms of efficiency improvement. Well, I think the sort of customers that Apple want to address there are very much um, interested in the ability to refresh machines when they want without having to make a large capital outlay because we all know that, you know, company, um, you know, accountants and, and financial directors like to have things that are predictable. You know, we can we can say that the cost for having, let's say, 100 Macs deployed is going to be X amount per month. And when we want to refresh some of those machines, we can simply take out some machines and put in newer ones um, with, you know, not much change to our, uh, our monthly outgoing. And that is a that is a huge, you know, a huge thing. Because let's face it, if you're going to deploy 100 Macintoshes, that's a lot of money. That's a big outlay if you're going to go and buy them. Um, even if you get, you know, corporate discounts and all sorts of other, you know, sugared terms to make it uh, more palatable, that's still a big chunk of change that you've got to put out. And uh, in, in much the same way as... Um, having your iPhone on on a refresh program or or you know uh spreading that you know spreading the cost over the period of your phone contract appeals because you don't have to find a thousand odd quid in one go you just say well it's going to cost me so much a month for the lifetime of the yeah product. and I mean this thing isn't this thing isn't free and you know it's it's through a it's through a third party organization hmm. sort of you know do, doing the uh, um uh doing the financing so you know it's it's not for everyone right but it's interesting to see this sort of uh th this i don't know bigger picture um kind of emerge where uh uh you know apple is, is making this play uh for small and medium businesses um in sort of interesting ways that it's really kind of ignored up until now we we all know about apple's you know, huge corporate wins at places like IBM, right? You know, um, but uh, uh, the, the the Apple strategy for small and medium businesses is, you know, not always been clear or even coherent. No, that is very, very true. Um, one thing you cannot say about Apple's small business strategy is, you know, structured and reliable. It's often erratic. <laughs> erratic unclear and um difficult to follow um and not always <laughs> not always reliable you know what i mean they've had some pretty yeah, good yeah i think it depends uh, on what you know they've had a, a pretty good record of yeah we've introduced this stuff which is fabulous for business oh we've stopped doing that we got bored of that you know the x serve for example yeah and that, uh was it the x san storage um you know they yeah they, they're not just... quite as uh they're not quite as um What's the word? Uh, um, I, I guess as, as scattered as as Google is, but they've definitely put some some good products to um, to bed. The X service is a brilliant example. Um, you know, now it's interesting because looking at it, uh, 
okay, so the XServe is long gone, but looking at it sort of more, more holistically, you know, now Apple is one of the biggest hyperscalers in the world, right? You know, if you consider the size of their, um, their data centers worldwide. You know, they're not a public hyperscaler like AWS, let's say, or Google Cloud or uh, uh, Microsoft Azure but uh, or Oracle, um, but Facebook, Apple, you know, and uh, in China, of course, Alibaba, you know, these, these people, I mean, these, these businesses hu- run huge, huge data centers um, all over the world. Now, of course, Apple doesn't eat its own dog food in data centers, right? Those are all bare metal servers. Um, and it doesn't matter what's running on them. That's <laughs> the whole point of cloud computing is that everything is abstracted. You know, the, the operating system and the hardware operation is fundamentally abstracted from the rest of it, right? So it doesn't matter and it can scale up and down. But you see how Apple's cloud services have, have become, it, it, it's understandable within the context of how important cloud services have become to Apple's bottom line, or just services in general have become to Apple's bottom line and Apple's continued growth, right? Apple can only sell so much hardware. And these days, it can only make so much hardware to sell, right? It needs to cash in on people continuing to use that hardware day in and day out, right? So business services like, you know, whether it's, it's, it's MDM for your small to medium-sized business that Apple pays for, or, you know, being able to, um, uh, you know, pay a predictable monthly cost per, per customer with the expectation of continuously upgrading your Apple hardware instead of being stuck with stuff that you've got to, you know, amortize and eventually write off as a business expense or whatever, whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, you know, it's, it's these little things that, that, um, you know, that 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 make it sort of interesting to watch is sort of the bigger picture stuff. I don't know what's gonna happen um a couple of years out as new product markets emerge for Apple. We know that they've got, you know, eyeglasses or something in the AR slash VR space uh coming soon. Is that their big disruptive thing? Is it going to be the the uh, the car, you know, or is it gonna be something else entirely? Yeah. I'm still waiting for my jetpack. <laughs> I promised a jetpack, Simon. I want a jetpack. Yeah. Where's my flying car? Well, welcome to the Gernsback Continuum. But um, it is interesting. And um, like you, you were referencing earlier, you were talking about TSMC. And uh, we covered that a, a, a while back when uh, first there were rumors that TSMC were going to put their prices up and this would, you know, hit Apple hard. And of course, what, uh, what actually happened was TSMC said, we're going to be putting the prices up probably about 25, 30%. Um, but Apple are only, their prices are only going up by 10%. So, um, you know, no doubt because Apple buys such a huge amount, you know, as far as I'm aware, TSMC manufacture pretty much everything that Apple uses. So, um, they've leveraged Well, that. Apple's, Apple's business, Apple's business is also driving stuff for TSMC. Like, uh, TSMC is, is getting ready to, um, uh, to prep, uh, three na- uh, nanometer, yep. uh, a three nanometer process, uh, for, for production. Um, and you know, that, that, Right there, you know, Apple wants that for future uh, for future silicon designs. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, TSMC, it, it's interesting, right? You know, it, you look back in the history of things, and the semiconductor industry. It really wasn't that long ago that the semiconductor industry, and this is Intel's whole problem, right? Was a very vertical market, right? 
Um, but, uh, you know, in companies like NVIDIA and uh, ARM, for that matter, uh, really kind of paved the way for and, and Qualcomm and Broadcom and so, so on. They are all fabulous, right? You know, they, they, they don't run their, their own foundries. You know, they, they farm that stuff out. You know, Apple, too. Um, that, that, and that's where companies, obviously, like TSMC, um, uh, come into play so much. But it's been interesting to watch how that abstraction has, has played out in, in terms of um, the overall development of the market. I mean, we reported over at RCR Wireless last week that um, the uh, Federal Trade Commission in, in the States um, is suing to stop NVIDIA from acquiring ARM. Um, that, that, that deal, which was announced in 2020, raised all sorts of red flags, uh, with regulators, not only on both sides of the pond, but also on both sides of the Pacific because SoftBank owns ARM there in Japan. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of thrown the, the semiconductor business into a big question mark. Like what's going to happen here? The, the whole NVIDIA ARM thing was weird anyway, because I, I, along with a lot of other people were kind of scratching, was, were, yeah. was kind of scratching my head going, what does NVIDIA have to gain by taking ARM, you know, by acquiring ARM? And the FTC concluded nothing except trying to kill competition and raise prices and stifle innovation. So we're going to put a stop to it. You yeah. know, this is antitrust. So it's interesting. And, and, you know, for anybody who's concerned, it's got nothing to do with Apple whatsoever. Apple's uh, license to ARM is, as far as I know, like perpetual and goes back to the very beginning of, uh, you know, the whole ARM thing. So that this doesn't put Apple's um, silicon plans in, in jeopardy at all, even though it's, you know, licensed from an ARM design. It's it's. Uh, this is this is future stuff for Nvidia, but I mean, you know, it just Nvidia's presence as such an infrastructure builder for hyperscale solutions these days. You know, I, I guess they see it as complementary businesses. I don't know, I don't know, but weird stuff, man. Yeah, uh, like you, when that was announced, it, it sort of kind of was like a head scratcher. It's like what you know, what what's in this? What's in this for? Nvidia, you know, they're not they're not heavy on ARM designed chips. You know, they're 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 kind of all in on big Intel, you know, number crunching um, chips. So the only thing you could kind of um, see maybe was are they looking at something like the um, you know are they looking at something like you know the M1 um, and thinking maybe we need to go down that road. I don't know. But like you, it was all a bit, it was like, mm, this all seems a bit like if we take over ARM, we can strangle the rest of the industry from, um, you know, getting hold of the best ARM designs. It was, um, and I think the British government also have raised a load of red flags about NVIDIA taking over ARM. So I don't think that's going yeah, to be true. NVIDIA was hoping to close the deal uh, sometime in 2022, but at this point, the FTC's own antitrust judge isn't even going to hear the case until August. So, uh, you know, odds odds are not looking great on this right now, um, but we'll see what happens. Of course, you can never tell what happens in these things. Sometimes they do weird and wonderful things, these legal people. <laughs> <laughs> but there we go. Weird and wonderful, yes. 
all barristers great and small. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, unpredictable and unfathomable occasionally, but there we are. So, um, I think what we'll do, Peter, uh, if it's all right with you, is we will take a short break and go over to John Nemo in the hardware store, um, and then we'll come back and take a brief look at the stories. Uh, take it away, John. There are some premium in-ear headphones, true wireless, meaning no cables, only Bluetooth, from our friends at Audio-Technica. The product model number is ATH-ANC-300-TW. Again, ATH-ANC-300-TW. Wireless noise cancelling headphones. The company is Audio Technica, A U D I O dash T E C H N I C A. Again, audio, then a dash or a hyphen T E C H N I C A. We have reviewed many, many headphones from this premium headphone manufacturer. These are the first truly portable, truly Bluetooth, truly wireless, no cables, in ear only noise-canceling headphones with a microphone for making phone calls or FaceTime or Skype or stuff like that, and they go in the ear. They're all black. You know, I'm always saying they should make them pink or purple or green or yellow, but they're all black. comes in a very attractive charging carrying case. When I lift up the top, it tells me how much charge there is in the battery in the case, because the case is the battery and the battery is the case, and then also how much charge on the left and the right headphones. comes with a USB-C charging cable, which is just fine. Don't lose it. The headphones out of the case. Get the right ear tip for the size and the comfort of your ear. Put them in. Press the buttons a certain way. Pair them with your phone or your pad, whatever your music source is, and listen away. Two important things about these. Actually, three. Number one, the sound is a wee bit dry, which is actually refreshing because the neutral sound, premium audio listening perspective, is so much more important than that blasting treble or that booming bass. They've kept the sound right in the sweet spot, right in the neutral middle. So they sound dry and austere compared to the competition, but if you want to hear the music cleanly and clearly, they deliver. That's item number one. Item number two is the price. Many other reviewers are complaining that at $230, these are overpriced. I say baloney. They're premium, in-ear, wireless headphones, and that's what the price range is. You can't get good ones for any less, so why not get really good ones from a company that's consistently excellent? The third item, which will take some getting used to, is the button pattern, left and right. There's a button, one each, on the left and the right earpiece, and you press it once on the right, does something, you press it twice on the left, it does something else. I'm not going to go into the details, but you can have your noise canceling on and off. You can forward and reverse the tracks. You can make your volume go up and down, all the regular stuff. And it will take you about, oh, probably a couple of hours of active use to master the button pattern. But it's really easy once you get it. And your favorite feature may not be one that you even thought you were buying these headphones for. So we're going to continue to use and evaluate these over the summer. They come with lots of different ear tips, different sizes, different textures to get the one that's most comfortable for your ear. The manual is in several different languages. It's one of those schematic type, graphic type, not a lot of text manual, but it's fine. You'll figure it out. There's also an app, an Audio-Technica app that you can use to upgrade the firmware on these headphones. 
and it also has in plain English in the app a much better manual for you to follow along if that is your desire. But most of the things you'll figure out from looking at the printed manual that's included. I actually had none of the complaints that the other reviewers had, so I'm just going to say forget the other reviewers. Just listen to us here in Nemo's Hardware Store on Essential Apple and give these a try. You will be glad you do, especially once you master the button pattern. I have other $200 in-ear wireless Bluetooth headphones from a competing manufacturer that I used to think were the best, but the button pattern alone, even if the sound wasn't more neutral and more accurate, the button pattern alone on the left and right earpieces elevates these immediately to the top, plus the quality of construction and the comfort of the fit. They feel good in my ears, and they will feel good in your ears too. Some of the reviewers complain they didn't have enough battery power compared to the competition to charge it up enough times. If you're going to be a nitpicker as a reviewer, that's going to happen. But as a user, you will find a lot to love about the ATH ANC 300 TW wireless noise canceling headphones from Audio Technica. Back next week with more innovation from Nemo's Hardware Store. Thank you, John. And as ever, the links will be in the show notes. Well, shall we have a look at a couple of stories, Peter? And um, we'll take a look at a couple of stories. The first one, actually, that I had was the upgrade program, which we've talked about. Um, so, yeah, that was the upgrade program for business users. Um, I'm just going to mention this one because it's not really worth discussing. But um, iPhone in Canada uh, did a review comparing the Apple polishing cloth to an Amazon Basics uh, 79 cent Canadian cloth. Um, and their, uh, <laughs> their overall, their overall uh, kind of takeaway was, hmm, the Apple polishing cloth is nice. And, uh, you know, it's all very slick, but you can buy 20 Amazon basic ones for the same money and uh, throw them away when they're dirty and uh, they do just as good a job. So not mm, much. Yeah, I mean, that. $90 for $90 for polishing cloth sounds disgusting, but uh, have you ever had a microfiber cloth that was, wasn't a complete piece of garbage? <laughs> that's true. That is true. There we are. Um I suppose that's a pay your money and you take your choice. That was the one of their takeaways was that actually the um, the Apple cloth is a, a bit smaller than it really wants to be um, for doing big screens. But uh, that's mm. possible. There we are. Uh, what else have we got? Um, uh, oh, this was a big one. Nine to five Mac reported this and it's elsewhere, of course. App Store monopoly claim rejected by federal court. Apple wins. Um, and this is particularly um you know relevant because the the court ruling more than anything else was apple is not a monopoly power and uh therefore their uh you know their right to exclude uh certain apps for um reasons of its own are not anti-competitive so that's actually a yeah big win. it's it, it it certainly is and uh, you know the the the, the point that the uh the judge made in his ruling was that the the complainants the in this case um, basically described multiple markets. They said this, they tried to conflate the smartphone market 
with the iOS institutional app market and the national smartphone app distribution market. And the judge was like, hey, look, you know, you, you can't move the goalposts and say that Apple has a monopoly unless you are defining specifically what Apple has a monopoly in. And these market market definitions are unclear and fair to, fail to pass muster. So it's important to understand this is a procedural ruling, right? At the, the judge didn't say Apple is not guilty of antitrust stuff at all. Like the, the court can't bring suit against, or nobody can bring suit against Apple about this again. What they're saying is, if you're going to come to me and say that Apple is anti-competitive and antitrust, you've got to prove it. And your lawyers did a really bad job of that. So without getting too lost in the weeds, this is a big deal, but understand what exactly the judge was saying. He, he wasn't saying that that um, Apple isn't muscling developers out of this. He's just saying, you, you can't say that it's it's uh, antitrust for the entire smartphone market when what you're really talking about is this one little segment here that you're having trouble with. And that's, you know, not an antitrust thing. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Also, of course, um, for anybody who's not um, aware of this, the main reason that uh, the coronavirus, uh, coronavirus reporter app was re- rejected by Apple um, because it's not an official governmental health body supplied um, product. And Apple have ruled right from the start of the pandemic that anything, um, you know, related to uh, COVID information should be uh, an officially sanctioned, um, you know, uh, governmental or health organization uh, product. So there you go. Uh, I really didn't think they had a leg to stand on, to be honest, and attempting to claim that Apple were antitrust by uh, saying no just struck me as a bit of, you know. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, Get no, out of here with this nonsense. Come on. <laughs> yeah. As we sometimes say, be off with you before I summon a policeman. There we go. That's. Uh... <laughs> so that was that one. Um... Get in the sea. And Apple legal filing indicates it intends to collect commission regardless of whether or not uh, apps use uh, competing payment platforms rather than Apple's in-app purchases, which, um, to be honest, seems perfectly reasonable to me. Um, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of de- the developers who want to be able to have uh, separate payment uh, options wanted that mostly on the grounds that they thought they could get out from paying Apple commission. And Apple is saying that's not going to happen. No doubt uh, that will rumble on in courts for a long time before, uh, you know, some legal decision is made over that. But uh, I'm not surprised that Apple are expecting to continue to collect their commission. Um yeah, I mean, Google does the same thing, you know, yeah. so I, it's not like a, Apple's even setting precedent here, right? You know, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But, uh, yeah. you know, Apple's Apple's terms are are different than Google's. But the, the fact of the matter is that the, this is already happening. But, yeah, yeah you know that this is going to get dragged out for years. Of course, it will go on forever, no doubt. There mm-hmm. we are. Um mm-hmm. I've got one here, um, and I'm not going to go into it in great depth, uh, Peter, but we've got tidbits, uh, USB fuddled, untangling the rat's nest of USB-C standards and cables, which is quite a long read. Oh, this was great. Yeah, it was a good piece, uh, but it's quite long. Um, but it, it's, uh, it, it explains in moderate depth all the different types of things that can have USB-C plugs on them and 
why and, and I, I don't know about you but unless unless you're way more like knowledgeable about the stuff than i was i found out like several times that i had been using terms wrong or had things screwed up as i'm reading through this stuff yeah it's um you know this was this was super useful it is it is and if you're interested in in that sort of thing it's a good read um and it explains all the different um types of things the, the problem is that um different versions of usb c um have uh or you know usb c 3. Point whatever um also partly encapsulate parts of the thunderbolt um um what would you call it um operating uh, rules it's it's all quite complicated and in true truth it is a bloody rat's nest that's the honest <laughs> truth of it it's a it, it's a lovely idea here we have one cable uh you know one 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 plug type and that makes everything clear and easy uh except it doesn't <laughs> it makes it yeah easy. i guess I, the, the 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 best way that i can think to summarize it is that um uh you know usb3 or usb-c is a connector that works with usb and thunderbolt right yep but usb3.1 and 3.2 <laughs> <laughs> you know, th- which are required by USB four and USB and Thunderbolt three, and f- well, you can see where it gets confusing, folks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come on, <laughs> let's it, it, make it easy for us. But you know, you know, a USB is a cable type, and then everything else is just a random mess. Yeah, so there needs yeah. to be a flow chart. There needs to be a flow chart. Yep, there does. Um, and they've got a, a breakdown in here, and we won't go into it in depth because it's quite long. But it it is actually a tangled mess, and it would help if, in some way, the cables could be clearer labelled and the USB uh consortium's uh certificate certified logo program is, to be honest, useless and hopeless. <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> Oh, you look at it and go, what? What's this supposed to mean? I've no idea. It doesn't help in the least. You know, can we not have... Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think the advantage for us, though, is that, as you said at the outset, uh, USB-C and Thunderbolt do converge, you know, at at USB... I mean, at Thunderbolt 3. So we've got that going for us, you know? However, I just picked up a Thunderbolt 4 dock for my M1 MacBook Pro, which is Thunderbolt 3, even though it's physically identical. In every way to the Thunderbolt 4 that my wife's 16-inch MacBook Pro, M1 Pro MacBook Pro has. But she gets the faster Thunderbolt than I do, even though it's the same plug. No. Yeah. No. It's all perfectly clear. (laughs) Perfectly. (laughs) Oh, dear. And then they've got, I mean, here's here's a classic, right? USB 4 slash Thunderbolt 4 comes in flavors of up to 20 gigabits per second and 15 watts of power or 20 gigabits per second and 60 watts of power or 20 gigabits per second and 240 watts of power or 40 gigabits and 15 watt 40 gigabits and 60 watt or 40 gigabits and 240 watt and um to the average user there is no way to tell the bloody difference between those cables This is the mis- this is this is the problem with hiring Terry Gilliam to write specs for USB. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, indeed. What we really need is some sort of mandated, you know, if it's red it does that and if it's blue it does that and if it's green it does that, but there you are. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a mess, that is true. Um 
we've got in here, yeah, FTC sues to stop NVIDIA's ARM acquisition, which is uh, RCRY. Yeah, I threw that in there. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's the piece that we were talking about before. Yep. Interesting stuff. Um, what we got here? Um, apparently, people are using the AirTag uh, to track cars, which they wish to steal. Um, this is the uh, this was uh, from Driving Blog. Um, particularly in Canada, I believe they've taken to uh, putting an AirTag on, you know, a desirable vehicle to be boosted, um, so that they can track it to somewhere where it's uh, easier to steal. So, you know, be careful. <laughs> I wonder if I can program my air tags to block rogue air tags. Yeah. Well, you can, you can do it. It'll just be an escalation of air tag. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the interesting thing, you know, like, is there some kind of countermeasure that Apple could possibly develop um, to let you know if you've been tagged with an air tag and don't know it? Like if somebody slipped one into um, your briefcase or your backpack or, you know that so an air tag that is alien to your apple id yep well i mean they already have the thing that if one starts following you around that doesn't belong to your account you will get um you'll get a warning um and they shortened the period on that from about 72 hours or something down to um a random period between 8 and 24 or something i can't remember exactly there was a story about that but you can also there's a um i don't have any air tags so i'm not that familiar but there's a way you can uh, i believe sweep you know there's an app or something you can use to ping and see if there are any tags that don't belong to you within distance um yeah i mean air, rogue air tags are supposed to um you know broadcast either popping up on a bluetooth list or playing a sound but the problem is that you have to be close enough in physical proximity to, uh, to the air tag to hear it. And if the thief has, uh, if the car thief has made any attempt to disguise the air tag, you know, like if they've put it inside something else, y- you're, you may not be able to hear it, especially if it's in like a fender well or, you know, underneath your bumper or something like that, where you can't necessarily see it. And then of course, if you're not, familiar or don't have your phone set up for air tags or if you're at you know cursed to be an android user then you're out of luck you know you're not going to see it all either so this is this is really kind of an edge case and it doesn't seem to have happened to a lot of people but it's really kind of weird and troubling and i'm wondering i don't know i'm wondering what else um, apple can do to kind of prevent people from abusing air tags this way yeah yeah uh and you're right it doesn't seem to be a major thing it's just it's cropped up because it's air tags and it's oh look you know criminals have found a way to use air tags to do bad things but um your apple hardware is not safe yeah exactly one of those yeah uh there's a typical forbes type you know apple Mm. gives everybody a reason to dump their iphones yeah really (laughs) i don't think so (laughs) Oh dear! Um, if Apple bleeds, it leads. Yeah, that's the one. Um, okay, I've got a couple of worth of chirps, which is um, uh, I've got one from Mac Rumors. Forty Monterey uh, tips, tricks, and features you might not have seen. Um, which basically, as you might expect, details forty uh, features in Monterey, which are new or different from how they were previously, such as the fact that you can now make your um, pointer a different colour, and it's only taken um, however many years for that. 
<laughs> yeah, apple pointers are black, and they should always be black, except now they don't have to be, apparently. Um, you've got things like snapshot um, management in the disk utility. Um, uh, the convert image quick action, which um, is actually really handy. I don't know if you are you familiar with that one, Peter? Uh, yeah, I've I've heard about it, but I haven't really used it very much. I haven't I haven't really needed needed to. But this is the one that convert an image file from JPEG to other formats. Yeah, you, right. Um, yeah. It's it, it, it's depending on what you've uh, you know what what the settings are on your Mac. But like for example, if you have a tendency to take screenshots and it's set to be uh uh was it the um oh, what's it called the, anyway the enhanced um efficiency uh format which oh h-e-i-c -H or whatever yeah that that's the one yeah h-e-i-c -H um high efficiency image compression uh you can right click on it like on your desktop or whatever and it, under uh quick actions there's now convert image which will allow you to choose jpeg or pdf or some other format which is handy it's actually very handy particularly if you want to email them i know the mac is supposed to uh convert HEIC format uh, files to JPEG if you email them somewhere, but it doesn't always work. I found sometimes people get them and go, "What the hell is this? I can't open it." Um, hmm. that, there we go. But that that's actually very handy because it also means if you do simply wish to change a, uh, an image file format for whatever purpose, you no longer have to open it in you know whatever photo app you're using, be it Preview or Affinity or Photoshop or whatever, and then save it out as a different format. You can simply right click it and go change change format. Um, there you go. There nice. you go. Um, oh look, you can have an emoji as your user profile pic. Lovely. I'm overwhelmed by that, Peter. <laughs> I've waited my whole Mac life to uh, be able to do that. Not. <laughs> uh, there we go. Uh, anyway, there's 40 in there. There's 40 in there, some of which I knew, one or two I didn't, some of which is like I really don't care about, and others which are, oh, that's handy. Um, so that, that's a nice little article. Um, and I've, I've got one in here that you, you tweeted, actually, Peter, which is the Clockwork Pi uh, dev term computer. Isn't that a cool looking piece of kit? Isn't it just? Isn't it just? It's um quite pricey though. Comes in at about three hundred and thirty nine dollars. Um, yeah, and I mean it's a DIY thing, so yeah, there's it's got that going for it too. But uh, but it is it is just um you know it's 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 a really cool project, and I just I, I really got a kick out of it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean I had a look I, at uh, it. Great deal. I love I love. I love retro designs, you know, I just, I, and I, I, um, um, have a special place in my heart specifically for, uh, the TRS 80, 80 model one. If you ever remember, uh, model 100, rather, if you ever remember that thing, uh, it was a very early, um, uh, yep. uh, portable computer that Radio Shack sold. And, it was great. I, I forget uh, which Japanese manufacturer they OEM'd it from, but um, I think it was like a oh boy. I, I'm going to misremember everything now. But um, <laughs> the uh, I my my first experience with these was actually supporting them. I, I didn't actually use them at the time, but I had to help um, um, uh, reporters who were using them in the field uh, connect them to the computers to transfer the data over and. This was, you know, obviously 
in a very different time. Kyocera, by the way, manufactured them. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Tandy uh, uh, would would put its own imprimatur on it, but um, Kyocera uh, developed these personal computers back in the early 80s, right? Um, and we're, we're talking about incredibly primitive, like 8K of memory yeah. uh, with, uh, you know, maybe like a 2.4 megahertz processor or something well, like that. You know, you're talking really, in the... Uh, you're talking in the era of the spectrum and uh, like the dragon 32 and uh, yeah. Products yeah. Like that. I mean, yep. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, mid eighties, this was, you know, you know, compact was, was, was selling suitcase computers, you know, the, the, their portable computers were the size of, of sewing uh, machines. Um, Anyway, I'm a big fan of that. So th- that, you know, to make a long story really bearable, that was my real interest in this. Is that this is such a spitting image of that, but updated, you know, with a pie inside of it, and with so many other cool things going on. It just seems like a really, really neat uh, piece of hardware. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to get my hands on one of those. It's a, it is a nice piece of kit. I, I will say, uh, you know, three hundred and thirty-nine dollars. I guess it's not. You know, it's not an obscene amount of money. I mean, it's the price of a budget, you know, Intel laptop, the sort of thing you would pick up at Best Buy or... Um, I was going to say, that's Chrome. That's Chromebook money. And this is cooler yeah. than a Chromebook. Yep. Um, completely. You, know? you can have a thermal printer, built-in thermal printer, and uh, all sorts of things. So, you know, if you're interested in that, it, it, it's an interesting thing. I just... I just wanted for that alone, just so I can type things, just randomly tear them off and hand them to people. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. I I had a a friend for well, many many years ago, thirty plus years ago, who uh, had this sort of strange fancy that he he wanted to have an open top MG and he wanted to drive around in it, pull up at. at petrol stations uh, and jump out with his leather flying helmet and white overalls on and fling up the bonnet and change the spark plugs and race off again for no <laughs> no apparent reason whatsoever he just thought it would be a cool and weird thing to do to like screech into petrol stations change swap the spark plugs over and then drive off again leaving everybody utterly baffled <laughs> oh dear uh, there's an emergency, and then yeah, just go go like two people, just you know, swap spaces and go back around and get in and drive off again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we are. Um, but that was that. And uh, although I've mentioned it before, I've also put in a link to uh, the Raspberry Pi 400, which is um, rather less money. Um, which is the Raspberry Pi, um, which comes, you know, in the style of those 80s machines built inside a keyboard. Um, and for about £100, it's £94 UK, um, which is an, another nice, you know, similar kind of thing. Not as cool as the, uh, not as cool as the uh, Clockwork Pi, but um, a nice machine if you, you know, if you want to do that and not spend quite as much cash. Indeed, yeah, and uh, you know the only thing you need is what an external display, right? Uh, yes, all you need is a, a, di- a display of some sort. Uh, it has HDMI output, so you can plug it into your TV if you want to do that in the in the style of the eighties machines where we used to have to output to RF and stick it in the back of a CRT television. <laughs> oh, yes, I was just going to say, does it come with an RF modulator? Or do I have to build one? <laughs> yeah. Um. 
And last of all, uh, I've got one here, um, the Chargy, smarter than Apple's optimized battery charging. This was on 9 to 5 Mac. And this is basically a little USB dongle, um, which you uh, use to um, put on the end of your charge cable. And it allows you to do uh, power limiting and um, specify the charging limit. So you can set it to not charge your phone or whatever beyond 80% battery and so on. Um, not something that I think I'd bother to buy, but, uh, you know, if you're really into that sort of thing, it's about $30, I think, for one of these. Well, there, there are actual um, uh, practical reasons for doing this. Like, if you've got um, uh, a, uh, um, a high-powered PD charger, um, you could burn out um, devices that aren't designed to take all the power that they do um just by plugging them in right you can wear down your battery you can you can potentially damage circuitry too so having a smart charger is a cool idea for that reason alone if you're trying to sort of universalize where you're getting your power from and you're not sure whether or not you know the power supplies that you're working with can you know safely limit their power so that's one example then the other thing is just the industrial design of this if you like fruit flavored max like the old i fruit uh, fruit colored imax back in the day you're going to dig this because it's got this sort of um jelly um uh uh two tone color scheme that makes me think of the old imax yes yes uh, i mean they've got um the the bigger model here um the usb a uh, one is is kind of like grape or um, I don't know, avocado or some sort of very pale blueberry color. Let's see. It would have been, it would have been, it, let's see, back in the day, it would have been blueberry, uh, lime and ruby, right? Was yeah, it ruby? Ruby IMAC? Uh, well, there was, there was strawberry. Strawberry. There, there was Bondi blue and then there was strawberry, grape, lime, mandarin, uh, so all of them, I don't know. And then they added other ones later, didn't they? There was a um, a deep red one and uh, all sorts of colours. Um, and the yeah, they have a small one here which is for phones, which says on it for phones, and that comes in red, blue, or brass green. So there we are. Yeah, you know, mm. I found that go. an interesting, interesting thing. Like you say, if you know, if you've got, if you want to universalise your charger and your your um not sure that your device is smart enough to handle it correctly, then obviously that's a good thing. Um, yeah. There we are. There we are. Um, and that is pretty much it, Peter. We've done all the stories. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, and uh, would you like to tell people where they can find you around the web? Sure. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, Simon, thank you very much for inviting me and having me. And I'm sorry that I, I missed Nick this time around, but I, I hope to be on again sometime when the three of us can can chat but um you can find me online at uh on twitter uh for my 5g and telco cloud stuff at peter cohen peter c-o-h-e-n r-c-r um and of course you know read my stuff at rcrwireless.com and then for my own personal musings on twitter um, you can usually find me at flarg f-l-a-r-g-h jolly good jolly good um and you also uh put stuff on authory i believe 
Yes. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I, all my stuff on RCR ends up on authory as well. So, uh, feel free if you're looking for an RSS feed, for example, to stay up to date with what I'm working on, you can find one there. Lovely. Jolly good. Um, and as the listeners know, you can find me on the Twitter as at Serenak and that's S E R E N A K. Uh, the you know the show tweets is at Essential Apple, and you can find everything over at EssentialApple.com. Um, and as usual, thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you for everybody who supports us all um, in any way, shape, or form. As I say, you know, by retweeting our stuff or battering their friends around the head with a dead MacBook until they give in and listen. Um, <laughs> you know, people who send us money, beer, wine—we're not fussy. All those things. Uh, we thank you all. And uh, with that, Peter and I will say goodbye. Until next time, goodbye. Bye, folks. You've been listening to the Essential Apple Podcast. And I'd like to say if you enjoy the show and would like to support us, feel free to go over to the website essentialapple.com and you will find links to both Patreon and the Pinecast Tips Jar where you can make a donation towards the costs of the show. Uh, Or even if you're really keen, you could set up a recurring payment. And thank you very, very much to all the people who already do support us. We really do appreciate you very much indeed. This show is, of course, part of the My Mac Podcasting Network, where you can find a variety of other shows like the My Mac Podcast with Guy and Gaz, the G-Men, Tech Fan with Tim and David, the Nintendo Club Podcast, the Geekiest Show Ever, the Three Geeky Ladies, uh, Bart Bouchotts and his wonderful Let's Talk Apple, and possibly some more that I forgot. So why not go over to mymac.com, take a look at the available podcasts, and take a listen. Hi, I'm Bart Bouchotts, host of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. Every month I gather together a panel of Apple followers and we digest the month's Apple news. Our aim is to step back and take a 40,000 foot view of all things Apple. We're the perfect complement to the many great daily news shows out there. Listen and subscribe at www.letstalk.ie. Bye.